This is Cultural Debris with host Alan Cornett. It's a snowy day at Cultural Debris HQ, a beautiful mark to the beginning of Advent and the Christmas season. The way 2020 has gone, we all deserve a festive end to the year. I continue to be thankful for the warm reception you have given Cultural Debris. I admit that I'm driven by what interests me, but I hope my conversations interest you as well. So far, that seems to be the case. I received my first seed catalog this past week. It's a welcome reminder of the cycle of growth, death, and renewal. It can also mark all the plants I want to grow, then figure out what I actually can. I'll still over-order, almost certainly. For those of you who want to hear even more of what I have to say, I was interviewed by Nick over at the Conversation of Our Generation podcast last month. You can catch the episode on his website or also through the regular podcast apps. We talk a fair amount about Russell Kirk and Roger Scruton, among other things, including the challenges of finding humanity during lockdowns and mask wearing. Lest we think this time is worse than other times... I share with you a poem by Madeline Lingle called In the Darkest Hour. It was a time like this, war and tumult of war, a horror in the air, hungry yawned the abyss, and yet there came the star, and the child most wonderfully there. It was a time like this, of fear and lust for power, license and greed and blight, and yet the prince of bliss came into the darkest hour in quiet and silent light. And in a time like this, how celebrate his birth when all things fall apart? Ah, wonderful it is, with no room on the earth. The stable is our heart. If you like poetry, and if you're hanging around here, I assume you do, you will enjoy this conversation with poet and writer Daniel Rattel whose new book, Commonwealth, is set to be issued from the Little Getting Press. As someone who enjoys life in the Commonwealth of Kentucky, I appreciate a celebration of the concept. Dan shares some of his poems, discusses his time in Scotland and St. Andrews, and how the place of New England has informed his poetry. We also spend some time discussing an article he wrote this past summer for the Front Porch Republic on a meeting between Kentucky poet Wendell Berry and Kentucky monk Thomas Merton. Barry has been at the forefront of my thinking for nearly three decades, and Merton has always been lurking around. I've purchased a number of his books over the years, but only recently started reading his masterpiece, The Seven-Story Mountain. The meeting of Barry and Merton was captured by Lexington photographer Ralph Eugene Meteard. You might be interested in the book Father Louie, Photographs of Thomas Merton by Ralph Eugene Meteard, released in 1991 by Timpkin Press. Thank you again for listening, and I feel confident you'll enjoy guest Daniel Rattel. Dan Rattel, welcome to Cultural Debris. Uh, It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. You are speaking this morning from Massachusetts, is that correct? That's right. So are you a native of Massachusetts? Yes, I, uh, I live um, 
oh six miles away from my hometown. Oh, that's nice. That's yeah. Nice. So uh, I will I will admit for a a non New Englander when I think Massachusetts, I just simply think Boston. So I know that that's uh, that's probably a, a horrific thing for a lot of people <laughs> in Massachusetts. But what what part of Massachusetts are you from? Um, it's called uh, it's it's Western Mass. So I'm about ninety miles west of Boston. Um, and there's a, like a tri-county area we call the Pioneer Valley. Um, so I live in Hampshire County. Uh, I live really near Smith College, um, UMass Amherst. So is uh, is uh, 90 miles a, a good enough buffer uh, from Boston? or is? Oh, yes, yes. Um, what we've really got to worry about now is the New Yorkers. They're all uh, uh, they're all moving up up north. Yeah. I, I think lots of people um, <laughs> feel like they have to worry about the New Yorkers. Uh, on, on out west, it's they have to worry about the Californians, but, uh, <laughs> but otherwise, they have to worry about about the New Yorkers. Uh, well, you until recently though were were spending time in Scotland. Uh, when did you when did you return? Uh, early April, um, we. Uh... We had we had just decided to stay a second year in Scotland, um, and then the university told international students that they should leave. Um, so we packed up our house and got on a plane. There were ten passengers from uh, London to New York, and um, yeah, we've been here. I guess I guess it's half a year almost, or something like that. So you had been then in Scotland for a year and had another year to go, and then COVID sort of uh, sort of happened. Yeah, that's right. Are you? Do you think you'll be able to go back, or is that just uh, time lost? I guess we would uh, we would like to go back at least for my graduation next December, um, but it's very expensive, and I have a family of five, so. Sure. Well, right. I, I, I sympathize with that. Uh, I too have a family of five, so yeah. I, it's, it's hard, it's hard to move all the troops if you're, uh, if, if you're especially doing something, uh, on that scale. Well, I hope you get to go back. I, I, uh, I know a lot of people, um, my, my daughter is one who missed out on some, uh, foreign study opportunities that you know, they're just not going to be able to get back and that's regrettable but you got to spend a year in St. Andrews so that's not too bad uh, as as far in the grand scheme of things what's St. Andrews like well everyone kept apologizing to me all the natives that it was such a small town but it felt like a a medium-sized city to me um it was well I guess it's I guess it's like four main streets um is the downtown st andrews which which feels big to me um some of them are cobblestone um my building where i where had classes was uh right on the ocean like 20 feet away from the ocean and in between the ocean and that building was uh the ruined st andrews castle so it was a pretty cool place to study um the other weird thing about it is 30% of the student body is North American. So um, oh, wow. most of my, my friends were American or, or Canadian. Um, in fact, all of my 
all but two of my cohort um, in the creative writing program were foreign. Um, there was one woman from Spain, um, one from Italy, uh, Canadian, uh, Australian. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an international town for sure. Of course, Russell Kirk, who my old boss uh, and the uh, the topic of the first episode of this podcast uh, got his doctorate at St. Andrews and, in fact, wrote a, uh, a book about St. Andrews, which folks can track down, obviously not still in print, but it's a beautiful volume. I should have picked uh, it up. I saw it in a in a charity shop um, oh, one time. I yes, should, you I... should have. <laughs> it, can, it can be a little pricey uh, on the used book market. Oh, so. my goodness. Uh, you, uh, you, you may have missed your opportunity to get it cheap, but I guess I did. Yeah. Uh, my, my, uh, theory is on, on seeing Russell Kirk. And I do this with Wendell Berry too. And a couple of other authors that if I run across them at a thrift store and I do lots of thrift store haunting and that sort of thing, if I run across a copy and usually I already have it, uh, I always pick it up because I figure that I can at least give it to somebody who who would appreciate it so um so that's just that's been my uh, my guiding principle in, in recent years but uh it's interesting that it was uh, that it was just sort of hanging around there that's it, in some ways that feels a little bit encouraging to me that it's just sort of it's sort of sifted into the overall culture of the place right um, that's that's not a bad thing how uh how was being in the place we're talking about you being in the place of Massachusetts, how was being in the place of St. Andrews, how did that affect your poetry? Yeah, I, um, I took the year abroad to write, um, specifically to become homesick, um, and to see things about home that I, that I might've missed if I were still here. Um, so in a lot of ways, it was it was really challenging. All of us, my my whole family were uh, were really homesick. None of us had really lived outside of uh, of our little tri county area. Um, so it was good for my for my poetry, though. I I think I I wrote um, about some 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 memories that that came up that that wouldn't have come up otherwise, um, and. Uh, but also, I, I started writing a little bit about uh, about Scotland, um, and and you know the sea is obviously a big motif, and um, it's a lot darker, so darkness mm-hmm. comes in, and um, and I was I ended up hanging out with uh, mostly uh, divinity students, um, so I picked up a lot of stuff from them and, and wrote a lot about. Uh, religion, I guess. Would you mind reading us one of your poems? Sure, absolutely. Um, I'll I'll start with a poem I wrote in the weeks leading up to going to St. Andrews. Um, and it's called Nostalgia. He cuts a clean mid-century silhouette and leans against the late Rococo urn with skinny tie and just-so cigarette. It's not quite sepia, a slow burn. Back home, 
he'll serve his neighbor's rye Manhattans. A couple rounds of bridge complete the scene, Midwestern, hours behind. Though photos flatten, iron over if and maybe, might have been, the queuing up, the waiting for the train, we take them, take them for the real thing. Vienna, Rome, Madrid, Alsace-Lorraine, at least it isn't here, the familiar sting, the ache that comes with coming home. He's seen the negatives, cues up vacation shots, and casts his life against a blank white screen. Still life with porcelain vase, forget-me-nots. Everybody who has traveled has that has that sense of nostalgia for being someplace else. And I think that that's something that's been heightened by our current distress because we can't go anywhere. Right. right? And so we have to, we have to live vicariously. Um, but it's also, we also have this problem of, of not living in the moment, obviously. Uh, I think Wendell Berry has a poem about, about the photographer never actually experiencing directly what he's, what he's in mm-hmm. this that's from your new collection called the commonwealth which is uh, at the time of this of this the release of this podcast should be available it's from little getting press tell listeners how they can get a copy of this new collection of, of your poetry well um you can go to the little getting press uh twitter um, I don't think they have a website yet. This is their second book that they're putting out. Um, but I think primarily they're selling it on Amazon. Gotcha. So so Amazon, the uh, the, the great leveler, <laughs> yeah. does does provide it. But they but you can also get it directly from Little Getting, and of course that's uh, that's always recommended uh, with with little presses because they. They make considerably more money if they sell it to you directly rather than uh, than Amazon or others getting their cut on these things. Mm-hmm. And these little presses are good things because they, they publish a lot of things that otherwise uh, would never really see the light of day. And they're, they're important, I think. What, uh, what can you tell me about Little Getting Press? Yeah, it's the... Um literary imprint of uh north american anglican press um they are a uh i guess a a journal and a press uh affiliated with the acna the anglican church in north america um and little getting press uh, is run by clinton collister who is a, a fellow that i met in st andrews he was in uh in the divinity program um and their mission is to publish um, poetry primarily, uh, but also some fiction and literary criticism. Um, they're looking for uh, to publish, you know, not not strictly religious verse or fiction, but um, things that just sort of speak to the soul, I guess. One of the things that we've seen 
Yes, I think this is particularly true in maybe evangelical circles, is uh, sort of this overt religiosity in poetry, fiction, whatever it might be, that it always seemed to me missed the point of the poetry or the fiction or the art of <laughs> that they're that they're attempting to express that that the the overt uh, sort of piety I guess piousness gets in the way of what they're trying to actually say or get across. Yeah, um, T. S. Eliot makes a good distinction between literature and and propaganda, and um, he with with a good deal of cheek refers to the father brown stories of gk chesterton as propaganda um and he he said that they would fail if chesterton just wasn't so talented <laughs> that's uh you know that i guess that's probably a, a backhanded compliment i could live with if i were chesterton <laughs> <laughs> that's right <laughs> but if uh if our if our other prop, religious propaganda was was as good as Chesterton, though, we would uh, we would be in much better shape. I feel right, like. <laughs> right, yes. Talking a little bit more about the idea of place, you know, I I shared my um, Massachusetts prejudices there at the beginning, sort of thinking of it uh, as it's sort of a reverse idea of flyover country, right? I just you just think of of everything and sort of the East coast metroplex is just, you know, right. New York, Boston, DC sort of thing. Do you think that say Northeastern New England poetry and fiction that it has not conveyed the same amount of, of place like, for example, Southern poetry, Southern literature, it almost is the idea is baked in that it's you know, there's this this idea of place Barry and Faulkner and so forth mm-hmm. uh, with with those from the Northeast a lot of times we don't think of it really in those terms I feel like do you think that that's the case do you think that there has been a lack of appreciation? Or uh, from from the artists, or do you think there's a lack of appreciation from the readers? Maybe that's maybe that's the the case from from those uh, who are writing from the Northeast. I think I think that's generally true, and I tend to take my cue from Southern poets. Um, probably my favorite poet is uh, is Morris Manning. Um, I've taken a lot of of inspiration from him. Um, and I think well, in general, I'll throw in an endorsement for Morris. Morris is actually my cousin, so oh, great. That's cool. <laughs> yes, his, yes, his his father and my mother were first cousins. Okay, uh, and oh. so he his family's originally from the the same county I grew up in. They moved you know, two counties away, and so I I actually don't know Morris uh, personally very well, but uh, but we're actually fairly closely related in in kentucky terms right well well, that's cool um and and i'm a great appreciator of morris's poetry as well yeah yeah and and um there's uh 
but but here in the north, um, there are some obvious exceptions like Donald Hall um, and his wife Jane Kenyon. Um, but there, are, but but even people don't think of James Tate particularly as a as a poet of place. But if you look at his later work, um, it's all about small town um, life and and how weird it can be sometimes. Um, he has a poem in his penultimate collection um, that mentions by name Bernardston, Massachusetts, which is just a it's just a small town um, of oh it probably has a population of less than a thousand or maybe twelve hundred. Um, so it would certainly count James Tate who lived and wrote in Pelham, Massachusetts uh, for most of his his career. Um, and there's a younger poet um, named Keith Leonard from Martha's Vineyard who, uh, who writes about the island a, a fair bit. Um, and living on Martha's Vineyard is a very different experience from visiting it. Um, it gets very... It gets very sketchy, apparently, uh, after, <laughs> after the season. The mean streets of Martha's Vineyard. Indeed. <laughs> I'll have to check him out. Yeah, yeah, I think you'd, I think you'd like it. Um, Morris gives an endorsement of his, uh, of his book on the, on the back of it. So, well, that I'll, I'll trust that for sure. All right. Uh, years ago, decades ago, uh, Donald Davidson wrote an essay called Still Rebels, Still Yankees. I don't know if you're familiar with that. but No. Uh, Davidson, of course, was was one of the fugitive poets and, and one, uh, and I guess along with maybe Lytle, uh, the writer from that group, the fugitive agrarians, who remained the most, I guess, unreconstructed of the, of the group, but during his uh, later years, he attended, uh, taught at, I guess, the uh, uh, the Breadloaf uh, Summer uh, Writers uh, Studies that they had up there. Yeah, and uh, and became uh, became friends with Robert Frost, and uh, and and began to have an appreciation for New England, which was, uh, I guess, in a lot of ways, an unexpected thing for uh, for someone like Donald Davidson. But in this essay, he, and it, he actually uses it as the title of the collection of essays, but he talks about appreciating sort of real New England for being real New England, basically, if you're going, if you're going to be in New England, then you then you really ought to be, you know, a true Mainer or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, or whatever it is, and that's thus the the title, still rebel, still Yankees. That that that's uh, uh, um, the the language would probably uh, probably cause a few today to wince, but <laughs> um, but he he's meaning it in in the sense of the distinctive American regions, whatever they are, ought to maintain an authenticity of place, whether it's New England or whether it's the South. Yeah. Um, Donald Hall makes a similar argument in uh, an essay called Rusticus, uh, where he, he makes the provocative claim that uh, a, a person from rural New Hampshire, where he was writing, 
uh, has more in common with someone from rural Georgia than with someone from Connecticut. Um, everyone in Massachusetts, by the way, hates Connecticut. It's just northern, <laughs> it's just northern New York. Um, but no, I think there's something there. And to Davidson's point about being authentic, I had this strange feeling when I was when I was in Scotland, a strange nostalgia for the white congregational churches. Um, I wasn't raised in the congregational church. I've never actually been to one. Um, I've been inside a couple, but um, it seemed to me that that's that's what I ought to be doing, or at least pining for. So I wrote a couple of poems um, about that, and that's sort of where the, the the Commonwealth comes from. You know, the epigraph is is John Winthrop, and I was thinking about the Puritans a lot. Do you have one of those poems handy that you would like to like sure? To share? It's very brief. Um, it's the last poem in the collection. It's called In a Puritan Churchyard. The youngest grave is union dead. I can just make out the stone. The sign says, if I have not love, the rest is long since gone. We, of course, have old churches littered around in central Kentucky. They're, they're not necessarily the same age as some of the New England churches, but this area, Lexington, uh, and the surrounding area was settled quite early in American terms, and uh, a lot of late 18th century, early 19th century structures still floating around out there. And so I can uh, I can appreciate the old uh, the old gravestone quite well. There's right. I think there 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 are a lot of a lot of connections. Um, uh, between between the two, let's come back to the idea of religion a little bit. You you mentioned friendships with uh, some of the divinity students. How how does religion inform your poetry and your writing? Well, Clinton says that it does. Um, my my editor. Um, <laughs> And, and he has the sort of scholarly language to describe it. Um, it's just a, a big part of my life, uh, so it so it comes out naturally. And um, I don't have a whole lot of sympathy, I guess, for the um, sort of doubting Christian motif um, that that is sometimes popular. I prefer to write from a from a place of of faith because it's in my case, more authentic and, um, and, and also more difficult. Um, I think of as a model, um, Marilyn Robinson's character, John Ames, um, who, who, who is a much harder character, I think, to write than, um, than any of, oh, Waz characters say, or that sort of doubting modern person. Right. Well, yeah, the the doubting modern person, I guess, is I mean, it's almost become a trope in mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. But on the other hand, I think writing a character, or maybe writing from a an orthodox perspective, can run the risk, perhaps, of of 
coming across with a little bit of propaganda or at least moralizing or something along mm-hmm. those lines. Yeah, yeah, that's that's certainly the risk. But yeah, I, I, I write about it when it's on my mind. Um, if I'm working through a particular um, issue or um, thinking about something a whole lot, a poem that isn't in the collection um, talks about... Um, uh, Saint Augustine and language. Um, still working on it. That's why it's not in the collection. Um, <laughs> You've got to have something for the next collection. Indeed. Um, and you know, a lot of the poems just have sort of a casual reference to it um, or to the Bible. You know, there's um, a poem in here where uh, you know I talk about uh, Adam and his, uh, the curse of labor and things like that. Um, it's just kind of in the air I breathe. I think that that, that that's the best way usually, uh, in art rather than, than drifting into propaganda is that it just is such a natural part of the writer that it's simply part of the way he thinks and part of the way, that uh, that she may consider the world and the language that's there in the mind, and it just sort of bubbles up naturally. It's not something you have to stretch for. It just seems it seems to be just natural and flowing. You're listening to the Cultural Debris Podcast. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about an essay that you wrote this summer that was in uh, that was in the Front Porch Republic about uh, one of the uh, favorites here on the podcast, and that's Wendell Berry. Uh, but his relationship, uh, a brief relationship uh, with Thomas Merton, and uh, there is, of course, there are a couple of sort of grainy and I think somewhat intentionally out of focus photos with Barry and Merton uh, that, uh, that exist that uh, are really quite haunting now. Uh, and I suppose even, even may have been then, but uh, looking, looking to us uh, all these decades later, Denise, Levertov is with them, is who is not someone that you expect to be there, mm, <laughs> and right. so which makes it which makes it all the more interesting. So this, uh, the title of this essay is "Work and Prayer: The Brief Friendship of Thomas Merton and Wendell Berry," and I will have a link to it in show notes. But it's on the Front Porch Republic's website if uh, folks would like to read it, and I would encourage them to do so. But talk to me a little bit provide maybe some background for uh, for Merton and Barry's interaction and friendship. Sure. So um, Denise Levertov set up the meeting uh, as it happens. Um, she and Barry were, were neighbors when, when Barry was living in New York City. Uh, and that's how they knew each other. And Levertov was a Catholic and was, uh, and so, sort of wanted to meet Merton as a, you know, as a Trappist monk. Um, so they met, at least once, I think perhaps uh, perhaps twice, um, but at least once at the Hermitage in 1969, uh, a year to the day before Merton died in Tha- Thailand or Vietnam. Yeah, uh, Thailand. Th- Thailand, I think. Right. Um, 
and so they met they met for lunch um and had a uh you know had a nice time um barry contributed some poems to merton's literary journal called monk's pond um which ran four issues um and barry was in two of them i think and there's a collection of those university press of kentucky i think published it some years back and so if uh, it's just a compilation of of the issues of of monk's pond if somebody i'm sure you, i'm sure it's not in print or i don't think it's in print but you can you can find it yeah i feel like it was i saw it on uh, ebay or something and it was very expensive um and so i thought it would be interesting to look at what they were writing at the time you know in the late 60s um and 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 see where they intersected and overlapped i knew that they would probably be sympathetic to one another um so i i, I drew from um zen and the birds of appetite which um merton was finishing on that day when he uh when he met with barry and i looked at um some of barry's poems um and i, I what i saw was a with both of them was a real sort of Benedictine way of looking at things. And of course the, the Trappists are Benedictines, um, a native hill. Yeah. That's what I was, uh, that's the, the, the main Barry essay that I, that I drew from. And I also got to look at their letters, which, uh, Jeff Bilbro provided for me. Um, it was interesting how this came, came about. I, just met uh posted something on on twitter asking you know if if they if they had ever met because i just happened to look up on google maps that port royal right yes yeah is is only about a half an hour or hour and a half excuse me away from gethsemane um both of those are places that you have to intend to go to by the way <laughs> they're not they're not just uh you know just exit the the interstate and you know, and you're there. It's it's and I and even and of course back then it would have been even more intentional uh, travel, I guess, to uh, to get to those places from one another. So I got to I got to look at the letters that they exchanged. They exchanged oh eight to ten something like that, um, and they had hoped to get together again, um, but Barry or but Merton, excuse me, went to Thailand and and died. Um, and we don't see, as far as I could tell in my research, we don't see much mention of Thomas Merton after, uh, after this happens from, from Barry. That's interesting. Of course, Barry would have been quite young at the time. Um, Merton was probably a little past the peak of his fame, although he was still pretty prolific during that period, uh, I believe. Um, but the, the literary, sort of the literary community that existed an artistic community is welcome because uh, one of the things uh, that you mentioned in the essay, of course, is that, uh, and the reason why we have the interesting photographs is because uh, Ralph Eugene Meatyard was there. Mm-hmm. And he's, quite well known of course 
uh, in the Lexington area. He lived in Lexington, was a, a photographer here, and uh, he did a lot of very experimental photography. Um, some of it is bizarre, <laughs> to say the least. Um, if if uh, if you've not seen it, it's uh, it's pretty wacky. But uh, he he was a a very um, talented photographer, a very sort of cutting edge. Was good friends with Barry, and obviously had had gone on this gone for this uh, a picnic as well. And so we have we have some of these photographs. And there's a there are a couple of books. Uh, he was also friends with Merton, of course, and there are a couple of books of his photography with Merton and one that came out, I think last year, that is also Merton's photography. So Merton, I guess, I don't know if Merton was sort of learning from Meteorit or or exactly how that relationship worked, but there's a, uh, it's a, it's a book called Meat Yard slash Merton and Merton slash Meat Yard is the, cool. is the name of it. I've got it. I've, I've got it sitting here beside of me, but, um, and then Meat Yard did a, uh, did the photography for Wendell Berry's essay on the Red River Gorge, which I think came out in 70 or 71. And at the time the plan had been the Red River Gorge is this, beautiful uh, area in eastern Kentucky. And the plan in the early 70s was, of course, if you have this beautiful natural gorge, then obviously you should dam it up and make a <laughs> make a lake out of it. So that was the plan at the time. And uh, Barry did this essay uh, about the gorge at the time and meet your I did photographs and that was published by the university of Kentucky press at the time and has been republished. You can still buy it. And, but the good news is that that, that, that book and meet your um, photography along with Barry's words probably saved the gorge. And now it's a, it is a, a tourist attraction here and not a tourist attraction makes it sound like it's uh, Gatlinburg or something, but, uh, but it's a, it's a hiking uh, camping destination and that sort of thing. It's um uh, it still maintains a lot of its integrity, uh, but it was it was essentially saved by in part by Meteorit and, and Barry and their work. But uh, so so Meteorit being part of this group uh, is is sort of an interesting thing, I think. Yeah, um, I I don't uh, I don't know a, a thing about the visual arts, I'm afraid. So I, I don't know um, Meteorit very well at all. I did I did take a look at some of his. Uh, pictures when I was doing this essay. But there are, there are a couple of other, um, couple of other photographs uh, in that series that I think you can find. They're on a, I can't remember, there's a university website that has them, Mm -hmm. uh, that has them archived that you can access and see them. But they're, uh, of course you have one of those, um, Sort of the, I guess, the one that's that's most widely known is Barry Levertov and Merton mm-hmm. with uh, sort of this uh, fields and hills and woods behind them, uh, right? 
looking at us. Uh, and it really, it, it certainly captures the moment in a, in a profound way. Um, what, what do you think about this relationship between the two? Do you, do you see a lot of similarities there? Do you think that's something that's a relationship that would have continued had, uh, had circumstances been different? It would be interesting. It's interesting to think about because, um, Barry was like, you, like you mentioned quite young. Um, and his, his thought didn't evolve too much throughout his, uh, career. Merton's of course changed radically in the, in the late fifties or, or thereabouts. Um, and it would have been interesting to see if it changed again. Um, however, the, the essays of the late sixties, as I trace in the essay are, um, show a lot of similarity, um, about, oh, place and, and the value of, of work and silence and, uh, all the things you might expect. Um, also they, they probably would agree more than disagree perhaps on politics, though neither of them strikes me as a particularly consistent political thinker, uh, or in terms of, um, like a theoretical politics. Um, Merton claimed to be an anarchist, but at times he um, wrote in support of, you know, having a one world government, say. Um, <laughs> Anarchy at its fine. Right, indeed. <laughs> um, uh, one thing I, I didn't get to talk about in the essay was um, their approach to, uh, to pacifism um, because they wrote about it at least in the instances I'm thinking of, uh, at different points, um, it, late in Seven Story Mountain, uh, Merton writes about how if he were drafted, he would go to World War II. Um, he hoped that he wouldn't be, but that's what he decided. Um, and he, uh, I think, w didn't qualify because he was missing almost all of his teeth or something like that. Um, and so he went to the monastery. Um, Jaber Crow, I remember, makes a similar uh, sort of declaration when, when he's thinking about, well, he's not a Quaker, so he couldn't in good conscience, you know, um, <laughs> dodge the draft when all of the other men from, from uh, Port William are going off to die. Um, and of course, uh, Jaber was, was never drafted either, but they make similar points. Um Merton doesn't, Barry doesn't seem to have made an enormous impression on, on Merton, um, and vice versa. In his, in his journals, Barry's mentioned twice, you know, like, oh, I have to write back to Wendell today. Uh, and, th and that's about it. And, you know, Barry came by the, the hermitage. It was fun. Was, you know. Yeah, right. Um, so it, it, it's hard to say. There was such a community, though, of uh, of these literary figures, mostly focused, interestingly, around Lexington rather than Louisville, which is kind of what you would expect. But uh, Barry uh, was at the time more Lexington focused because he was teaching at UK. Uh, Meteard was was here. Uh, you mentioned James Baker Hall in your uh, essay. Of course, he was a, a very close friend of Barry's and. 
also a poet uh, and a photographer uh, as well. He, he passed away a few years ago. Uh, another figure that uh, who, who Meteard was, was good friends with, as well as Merton, and who is also a professor at UK, was Guy Davenport. And um, I don't know if anyone's really explored Merton and Davenport's relationship. I think it was uh, a, a more developed one than... Um, than Wendell Berry's and, and Merton's was, but uh, there are a number of photographs that uh, that Meteard does with Davenport and so forth as well. So uh, Meteard is a is an interesting locus with all with all of these different with all these different figures. He seems to have been friends with all of them and took photographs of all of them. Some of them odd. Uh, <laughs> wearing weird masks and uh those sorts of things but mm. uh, he's certainly he's certainly uh interesting to explore there was a this a group called something like the lexington uh, photography club or something like that that uh meet your sort of spearheaded and there were some other like-minded professionals who were part of it uh, back in the 60s early 70s um and so there was this sort of this uh brimming experimental photography going on in Lexington, Kentucky, you know, who, who would have known, but um, lots of things such as that. But, you know, it was interesting. I, I one of the things I noted uh, when I was looking at Merton recently, he, Merton was born in 1915 and uh, Russell Kirk was born in 1918. So they were, they were pretty much exactly contemporaries. I don't know if, Dr. Kirk ever mentions Merton at all. Um, Mm -hmm. Obviously, a lot of their thinking would have been divergent from one another, but some of it, I think, would have lined up, and uh, it'd be interesting to see if Dr. Kirk had read something like Seven Story Mountain or something during his conversion to Catholicism as well, so... Anyway, those are just sort of random musings of mine right. <laughs> about about that. But yeah. uh, but I, I I found it fascinating that you had been drawn to that episode, and I thought I think it's uh, just one of those sort of interesting uh, moments in in literature and uh, when these when these people who so many of us look to just sort of had this moment of, of interaction that you you wonder could there have been more uh, to that if if time had allowed right yeah and at least at least for me Barry seems because I've I've known him only as an older writer he doesn't you don't think of him as sort of a a literary guy, or at least I don't, you know, like in terms of literary community, but he knew everybody <laughs> right. in, in, in the sixties and seventies. Um, I, I, in just doing research for this, I found out he, he, Donald Hall and Seamus Heaney did a reading together at um, uh, the university of Michigan in the 1980s. Oh, interesting. Uh, he, Heaney made a, uh, made an appearance at, at UK in Lexington 
want to say mid 2000s, something like that. I wasn't mm-hmm. here during that time, and so didn't. So I missed it, which I mm-hmm. regret. Uh, <laughs> I wish would would very much have liked to have seen Heaney. Heaney is one of the poets that I turn to most often. Uh, me too. And, uh, yeah, it was, it's interesting. Of course, Barry had a lot of connection to different literary figures through the, uh, Stegner fellowship. Mm-hmm. Um, there are lots of those, especially those West coast guys who went through there, Ken Kesey and sort of that crowd, which Barry knew all those guys, um, and was friends with all those guys. And, um, and then, of course, he was in New York as uh, in the writing program at NYU, which is where he left to come back to Kentucky. So, uh, you know, I I had not thought explicitly about the about the Levertov connection, for example. But that's those are the sorts of people he would have known. Just mm-hmm. sort of, you know, like you said, here's my neighbor Denise, kind of right, <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's interesting, you mentioned the theme of silence that, that you talk about, especially the, the latter part of the essay. And that seems to be a lot of what, what Barry was going for, that he, he did take this kind of monkish uh, turn, leaving the West Coast, leaving New York City behind to for his own for his own retreat which which are things you bring out in the essay right yeah um you know building the uh long-legged house um it just made me think of hermitage um and um i i suppose merton's relationship with new york city is far more complicated than than barry's but they both lived there um, apparently, uh, Merton was undergoing uh, psychoanalysis and his analyst said, you want to be a monk, but only if you're in the middle of Times Square and there's a big neon sign pointing to you that says monk. Um, <laughs> but, but it surprised me, um, reading Merton's later work, um, only knowing it by reputation he seems to have settled into himself and in the hermitage seems to have been good for him. He, for a long stretch, he really hated living at Gethsemane until he was given the, the hermitage in, in the mid sixties. Yeah. My impression is, and I've not read as much Merton as I should have and need to, but my, my impression is, is that uh, get, I guess that kind of retreat is something that that Merton embraced somewhat reluctantly, and as as you were pointing out, that his his inclination is to be sort of the focus of things, mm-hmm. and that that Barry's retreat was actually something that he very much desired. I feel like there's some there's different inclinations, just sort of natural personality inclinations. There, right. New York seems more like the right place for Merton uh, in the grand scheme of things. And, and that he did retreat to Kentucky as kind of the story there, I guess. But, 
the the long-legged house overlooking the Kentucky River seems like where Barry ought to be all the time, right? <laughs> That's just sort right. of his natural his natural habitat. Um, some some choose uh, silence because they need it. Some choose it because they want it. I suppose. Right. Yeah. Sense. And perhaps you know that um, Merton originally wanted to be a Franciscan, which is you know not a cloistered community. Um, he would have been much more active had he been uh, had he been chosen. Uh, but he was he was rejected, and this is edited out of Seven Story Mountain. But he had a he had a an illegitimate an illegitimate child in England. And they uh, that that didn't cut it for the Franciscans, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that was no good. Um, but the, the the Trappists were okay with it, apparently. Well, it's it's beautiful country down there uh, near Gethsemane, and uh, and of course also uh, also in Port Royal, both both lovely areas. Have you have you traveled to Kentucky before? Never. Uh, I hope to. Um, maybe when all this nonsense is over, um, you know, we have a, a a yurt that we like to travel with. Um, we'd like to bring it down there and and see some of the country. Oh, absolutely. Well. Please come down. We would love to uh, love to show you around and, and right. give you a feel for uh, for God's country. <laughs> well, Dan, if you wouldn't mind reading us uh, another poem from your collection, uh, the title poem we talked about, Commonwealth. All right, um, happy to. So this poem, um, it, you know, uses the sort of almost received language of the ruinous New England Frostian kind of uh, imagery. And I'm okay with that. That's fine. Um, <laughs> I'm, but um, it's sort of based on this plot of land my family owns in Cummington, Massachusetts, which people may know was uh, Richard Wilbur's home mm-hmm. uh, for a number of years. Um, and people also will know that, um, at one point, Western Massachusetts or all of it, um, was clear cut and it was, uh, America's breadbasket until people could, could move out West. And, um, I wrote this poem thinking about the cellar holes that are on, on this, on this property, um. It's called the, the Commonwealth. They burned the house and searched the coals for nails. Now all that's left is this foundation stone, storing up the heat for when it fails, like the snake who thinks the sunlight is his own. They took the nails and built a better place, out west where land was easy. Here, the trees, like bankers, took the farm and left no trace. They burned the house with such finality. Dan, thank you very much Thanks for, for being on. Uh, where can folks find you on Twitter? Yeah, um, I am at uh, D Rattel. Uh, that's R-A-T-T-E-L-L-E. Or uh, I, I reckon you could just search my name. And uh, yeah. And they can find the new collection Commonwealth from Little Getting Press. And, of course, just in time for Christmas shopping, <laughs> a nice stocking stuffer for the uh, for the poetry lover out there. Yes. Um, 
if I, if I might just plug it briefly, uh, it's very short. Um, I'm 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 fond of, of the of the what we used to call the slim volume. Yes. <laughs> I think poetry books have gotten far too long. Just uh, maybe maybe we call it a fat chap book. Thing. Yeah, the fat <laughs> chap. I like that. <laughs> that's a that's an excellent name. Well, Dan, thanks for being on. All right, thanks a lot. Thank you.